Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Taking the Long View on Out-of-Home Care, Sydney Ideas. Um, before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners on the land in which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, as we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Uh, my name is uh, Associate Professor Amy Conley-Wright. I'm the Director of the Institute of Up and Adoption Studies, and we're very pleased to bring this event to you this evening. Um, I'd like to advise you that this session is being recorded and will be made available as a podcast. And I would like to thank you for joining us tonight for this panel discussion on taking the long view, highlighting the importance of longitudinal research in understanding the trajectory and outcomes associated with vulnerable children and families. Knowledge and understanding offer the best hope for knowing when to intervene, how to offer support that provides more benefit than harm, what type of services are likely to work and for whom they are most effective, and at what point assistance is no longer needed. For children who've been removed from their families due to concerns about their safety and well-being, these questions are not theoretical, and answers are of vital importance. Systems that interact with vulnerable children and families need to respond within a child's time frame for healthy development and well-being. While debate continues about the best approaches and models for intervention, there is one issue that we can all agree upon, and that is that stability and secure attachment to carers in the early years is critically important for a child's positive development. As the New South Wales government undertakes the most major reform of the out-of-home care sector in decades, it cannot be expected that there are easy answers for, challenging, for the challenges of working with vulnerable children and families, or that we can anticipate the outcomes from the investment in new services. Targeted and longitudinal research offers the most effective means of addressing the gaps in knowledge. Such research needs to be driven by a partnership approach, drawing together government agencies, practitioners in the field, and leading universities and research bodies. That is why discussions like this one tonight are so important. One of the ways that the university can contribute is through the creation of opportunities for policymakers, practitioners, and academics to come together to address these challenges and to generate ideas and aspirations to change the lives of children and their families for the better. Tonight we will hear from three international and national academics, and the chief executive officer of a leading child and family organization. All of our speakers have devoted many years to providing services to and conducting research with vulnerable children and families. Their work has been instrumental in influencing policy and supporting evidence-informed practice. It's with great pleasure that I introduce our panel, our international guest, uh, Emeritus Professor Harriet Ward. If you want to raise your hand, Harriet. Thank you. Who established the Child and Family Research Center at Loughborough University and is honorary research fellow at the Reese Center for Research and Fostering and Education at Oxford University. Harriet has over 30 years of experience as both a research director and field researcher, as an advisor to policymakers and service providers, and as a social work practitioner. Harriet was the academic advisor to the Joint UK Department of Health and Department of Education Research Initiative on Safeguarding Children and chaired the Department of Education Working Party on Neglect. And in 2012, her work was recognized with the order of a CBE, Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, for her services to children and families. Professor Elizabeth Fernandez, Professor of Social Work at the University of New South Wales, Elizabeth's career spans over two decades of teaching and research in the areas of child abuse, trauma, family violence, and care and protection. Elizabeth has specialized in longitudinal research into practice with vulnerable children and families to contribute to a better understanding of life course theory and research. Professor Paul DeFabro from the University of Adelaide. Paul. Paul's principal research interests are in out-of-home care and child protection, and most of his research work involves statistical analysis of cross-sectional and longitudinal surveys and experimental studies. 
and Paul has been working with Professor Judy Cashmore and other New South Wales colleagues on the New South Wales Pathways of Care Longitudinal Study, which she'll be talking about with us today. And we are joined by Deirdre Cheers, the Chief Executive Officer of Bernardo's Australia and the Centre for Excellence in Open Adoption. Deirdre has many years of experience in child and family services, particularly in the care and protection of vulnerable children and young people. Each of our speakers will provide a brief presentation on their longitudinal research and how it has been used to inform policy and practice, with Deirdre providing a view from practice and agency management. This will be followed by an opportunity for the audience to ask questions of the presenters. If you have a question you'd like to ask the panel, please indicate this. You can just raise your hand and we'll have some roving staff who can provide you with a card to write down your, your question and they'll bring that to the front and uh, for the purposes of the audio recording, I'll be, be reading the questions. And I'll put as many of the questions as possible to the panel in the time that we have available. So we look forward to a lively discussion and question and answer and the presentations from our guests. And I'd like to invite Professor Harriet Ward to start our discussion. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. And I'm amazed that you've all come at five o'clock in the evening. Good gracious. Wouldn't happen in England. Thanks very much indeed for coming. I'm going to make a case for longitudinal research. And it's obvious I'm going to make that. I spent the last 30 years doing it. Why wouldn't I say it's a good idea? All the research that I have undertaken, or all the major studies I've undertaken since 1987, it is a long time ago, has focused on outcomes for children in care, children at risk of harm, those very vulnerable children. All but one of them has been funded by the British government, mostly as part of the big research initiatives that were um, commissioned between the mid-1980s and 2012 when they stopped. And their purpose has been to influence policy, so it's not surprising that they have had an influence. And I suppose the first question that I want to raise, or the first thing that we were asked to raise, is do these services, does coming into care, does being placed on a child protection register, does having a social worker involved in your life, does it make a difference? Because if it doesn't, then those services shouldn't be offered. We never asked that question in the 1980s when I began. We just asked how many children there were in care, what placements they had, how much they cost, basically. That was the only question. But in 1989, we had a new Children Act, and that introduced the theory that services should be provided in order to promote children's satisfactory development. Well, if we're looking at development, obviously, we're looking at longitudinal research. Children develop from year to year. The piece of work that we first undertook identified what areas of development we might want to monitor if we are providing services for very vulnerable children. And we identified seven areas of development, children's health, education, identity, family and social relationships, social presentation, emotional behavioral development, and self-care skills. It turned out to be a very popular program. It was called Looking After Children. It was taken up all over the world, including in Australia, and it failed because really there wasn't the technology to support it, and it was too complicated. But the idea was we could gather all this information, we could monitor children's progress along all those areas of development and see what the outcomes were according to the types of services they received. What this research did do, though, was it changed the conversation. It meant that our local authorities and our directors of children's services finally had to ask questions about the outcomes of care. And I do remember very well when they were first asked about what the educational outcomes were, only one in three of our directors of children's services knew how many of their children in care had achieved the equivalent of high school graduation year 12 certificates. They didn't know. We never asked. So at least we did begin to ask those questions. And that led to many more collections of outcomes data. And we were able to say, for instance, that 7% of our children in care had been convicted, reprimanded, or received a final warning in the previous year. And we could compare that with children in the general population. There were about three and a half times more children in care who were convicted of crimes than the general population. We could say that 
Um, 14% of them got the equivalent of a high school graduation, compared with 54% of the general population. It doesn't look good, does it? It looks as though they were not doing very well. And we could find that about half of them had substantial emotional behavioral difficulties. That naturally led to very bad press for our care system. And there are numerous reports in any newspaper that you pick up in the UK will tell you that care fails children, they all do badly, that it's a disaster, basically. That data, which only looks at one particular point in time for those children, takes no account of what happened before they come into care, gives no information about whether they are making any progress or not. And I think that led us all to begin to think, well, what happens before? Does that tell us anything about what happens after they have received a service? And we found that at the point of entry to care, they were showing very poor outcomes. These are largely abused and neglected children who come into our care system, and they are suffering the consequences of abuse and neglect. We found, for instance, that 17% um, of them had criminal convictions before they came into care. It's not surprising that quite a few of them continued to commit crimes after they came into care. We found that at least half of them had emotional or behavioral difficulties at the point of entry to care. So it's not surprising that they continued to have some of these difficulties when they were in care. So I think that the second thing that we realized really was that we need to look at the care system as part of one element in a child protection system, a system of services designed to support children who have been abused and neglected, basically, because the other thing that we found was that a very high proportion of our children who were in care had come into care because they were being abused and neglected by their birth families. So we did another study, we did a prospective study looking at babies who had been identified before their first birthdays as likely to suffer significant harm. That's the threshold in the UK for providing child protection services. It's the equivalent of substantiation, I think, in Australia. And we followed 36 of these infants from before they, two thirds of them we identified before they were born. We followed them from before their first birthday until they were eight years old. And we could look at those children. We had very good information, not only about the children, but also about their parents, and also about the professionals, how professionals made decisions for those children. But we could only really see what was happening by following those children longitudinally, year in, year out, seeing what had happened, what decisions had been made, and what the consequences of those decisions were. One of the things that we found was that it took forever for anybody to make a decision to remove a child. It's not true, as our, as our newspapers say, that wicked social workers are stealing children from families. That's absolute rubbish. What we found was that social workers, health professionals, the police, teachers, everybody involved took months and months and months to make those decisions, particularly when it was a case of removal. But we also found, because we could monitor these children's development, that those decisions, the delays in making those decisions, meant that a number of those children had compromised development by the time they came into care. We could also look at parents and see whether parents changed over the time frame of the study. And over the eight years of the study, only a quarter of the parents made significant changes to lifestyles that would compromise their children. But you need longitudinal information to find this. You need to find out what happens year in, year out. Otherwise, you can't identify whether minimal changes made around the time of a child's birth are substantiated during the child's lifetime later on. That study influenced a lot of policy. It was, part, it was one of a range of 15 studies that all came up with very similar results. It had an influence on timeframes for care proceedings. We now have quite restricted timeframes um, within which orders have to be made. It influenced thresholds for entry to care because we found a lot of the children in our study and in other studies being undertaken at the same time showed that many children were living in very damaging circumstances for a very long time before any action was taken. And it influenced policy concerning adoption. At the end of the study, we found that about half of the children were in care and half of the children were not. We didn't follow them anymore. 
but, we, but there are other studies that have followed children who have gone into care and who have followed what happens after they leave, what happens to the ones who leave, what happens to the ones who stay. There's a very valuable study undertaken by York University that found that these are abused and neglected children, found that abused and neglected children who stay in care experience more stability than abused and neglected children who go home because we know from our studies and the York study that those children who go home get passed around their families. They very often don't stay with the parent who, who they return to. The York study also found that the children in care did better on a whole range of criteria. They did better educationally. They, they, they had less substance misuse. They, they, they had greater opportunities for finding an adult who took an interest in them and so on and so forth than those who went home. So we could show that children who had come into care, if they had been abused and neglected, did better than those who returned to families who, like the families in our babies study, had been unable to change. So those studies, those longitudinal studies, have shown that care can provide an adequate service for children who don't have exceptional needs. And we found that about a third of the children in our care population were doing fine, and they received pretty good service. But it doesn't, and it provides better care than staying with abusive or neglectful parents or returning to them. What it doesn't do, though, it doesn't deal adequately with the consequences of abuse and neglect. It's not a psychotherapeutic service, and that's what a lot of our children need. And there are all sorts of issues. You know all about the instability, of course. But there's also issues about low aspirations, not expecting enough of children, poor integration into families, into foster care, and inadequate support for care leavers. I'm just on the point of completing a study um, undertaken um, for Bernardo's Australia, following up the children who were placed for adoption. So that's one step further, perhaps, from coming into care. Children for whom a decision had to be made, not whether they could go home or not, the decision had already been made that they can't go home, but whether they should stay in foster care or be placed for adoption. And that study found, like all the others, that these children have very high levels of adverse childhood experience before they're placed for adoption. Those are often exas exacerbated by poor care experiences. And they had high levels of instability in care before they went into their adoptive home. We're finding, however, that they're much more stable in their adoptive homes. The average length of placements has been 13 years. We've also found that those children who have a lot of instability in care, nevertheless, have been able to find, a high number of them have been able to find stability in their adoptive home. They have been integrated into their adoptive home more closely than children in foster care would have been, and they have had better support as they make the transition to adulthood. And we've, been, and we've also found that it's been possible to do that within a context of continuing contact with birth family members. We've now reached a point, all those are little studies, I suppose. They've look, looked at one population of children. They haven't been able to look at the whole population of children who are vulnerable or who come into care. But we've now reached a point where we could do that. We've got far better administrative data than we had when I started 30 years ago. You can access data on health, education, child welfare interventions, and youth justice for children in need, for, for, all, for the whole population, and then for children in need, and then for children in care. You can track children, you can track their process, progress, you can monitor how they're doing at school, how they're doing through the health service and so on. You could probably monitor their parents now. We can almost do that in the UK. And you can calculate the costs of those services. So you, you've got far better opportunities to do this type of research on a much larger scale than we have been able to do. But, and this is my final point really, there's a caveat. If you only look at huge populations with very precise, very clear data items, you miss some of the fine-grained information that can only be had from listening to children, and that is of paramount importance. All the studies have told us that I've done have, said, have, have come out with the conclusion, if only we listened more to the children, then we would have a better understanding of why things happen, how they progress, and what, what makes a difference to them. Listening to children has taught us in the studies that I have undertaken that 
Movement in care is matched by excessive movement, living with their birth parents and also when they, when they leave care. It's taught us that while some foster carers are outstanding, others are not. It's taught us about what the French call petite mesquinerie, small meannesses, foster carers who favor the, their own children over the foster children. We've encountered foster carers who, for instance, don't take children out, they don't take the foster care children out when they take their own children out to the cinema, that sort of thing. They've also taught us, perhaps this is the most important thing that we have learned, that unprofessional activities are valued. What the children I have spoken to say is, my social worker remembered to send me a birthday card even when she wasn't my social worker anymore. That's often regarded as unprofessional, but it is the unprofessional things that teach the children that there is somebody taking notice of them, somebody who cares about them, and that matters probably more than anything. So basically, that's what I have learned through undertaking longitudinal research. I find it very difficult to understand how you could find out those sorts of things if all you did was just look at cross-cutting information at one point in time. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Harriet Ward, for your uh, contribution. And now Professor Elizabeth Fernandez will speak, and she has some visuals as well that she'll be using. I'll bring those up now. And again, if you have questions, uh, we have staff with cards, so just indicate and we can bring you a card. Thank you very much for coming to this uh, forum and for your interest in this important area. As Harriet said, knowledge building in this field is so very important, and I guess it involves uh, something of a continuum that uh, exists over time. And I think there are various research designs that we select according to how far along that continuum we want to progress our building of knowledge. And I think longitudinal studies certainly are useful to uh, practitioners and policymakers in terms of being able to, I guess, identify and build types of knowledge along that continuum. So Harriet has uh, demonstrated through uh, the studies that she's presented the significance of being able to, uh, I guess, um, uh, have data that has been collected on a longitudinal basis, particularly in terms of looking at outcomes. And I think uh, the longitudinal studies certainly help us uh, to identify in, in simple terms whether change occurs, how it occurs, how it takes place, uh, when does it take place, and what kind of factors might be associated with achieving that change. So you have different types of longitudinal studies, and I guess one of the major features of it is that you are studying a particular population that's visited um, at regular intervals over a period of time to gather the required information at different intervals. And generally, you're focusing on a particular set of variables that is measured at uh, predetermined intervals. And Sometimes that information may be from the same set of people. Depending on the type of longitudinal design, you have what are called the trend studies, the cohort studies, and the panel studies. And um, what I'm going to do today is share with you a particular longitudinal piece of research that followed the panel study design, uh, which is where you have a cohort of... Um, uh, a po particular population, uh, uh, a group of participants uh, that you follow up with the specific, in order to understand their needs, in order to understand their uh, behaviors, um, and also to look at uh, particular responses that are made to their needs over time. Also, I guess uh, there are variations in terms of the reference period. Uh, Harriet just talked about the uh, prospective studies. There are also uh, uh, longitudinal uh, retrospective studies and a combination of the retrospective and the prospective. There are a number of major strengths as well as limitations when we look at longitudinal research. And I think um, 
uh, it has, uh, we, we are aware of a number of important longitudinal studies that have contributed to our knowledge uh, in the field of children and families, such as the long, long scan studies in the US. We've also had the LSAC in Australia. And one that always comes to my mind is the work of Kubler-Ross, who followed um, her uh, patients who were terminally ill in palliative care over five years, and through that identified particular emotions and stages that they go through uh, to build her model of uh, grief and loss that we use regularly. Um, so I guess um, there is no doubt uh, that there are great advantages that accrue from longitudinal research. Um, the cost is a major issue that we have to confront when we do longitudinal research. And also, I guess there are other barriers as well. And I'm basically wanting to share with you at this point uh, a 10-year longitudinal study that uh, I carried out looking at children's, looking at uh, the experience uh, perceptions of outcomes uh, of the foster care experience for a cohort of uh, 60 children. There's a growing body of research, and Harriet referred to the fact also that uh, there are a number of concerns that affect children in care, such as instability of care placements, uh, sometimes potential neglect of their education, also their vulnerability to developing uh, emotional and behavioral problems, and also the, the risk of sometimes not building secure attachments with caregivers once they've been removed uh, from their biological families. So based on that, the uh, major aims of my research were, first of all, to analyze the needs and experiences of the children from the perspective of their carers, their caseworkers, birth parents, and children themselves. Uh, also to look at the developing attachments and relationships with carers and to look at their adjustment and psychosocial outcomes uh, over the period of the study. The data collection involved uh, interviews that were carried out with the children from 8 to 18 over four waves of data collection with caseworkers of children of all ages, uh, foster and adoptive carers of children of all ages, and uh, with birth parents. Um, the core um, areas that were covered included uh, children's placement history, their reasons for coming into care, their relationships and attachments, uh, schooling, health, uh, emotional and behavioral development, identity and self-image, and uh, relationships with the caseworkers. Again, drawing on what Harriet referred to earlier, which was the looking after children framework that uh, highlights those different dimensions. The study also included, in addition to face-to-face, uh, -face, all the data was collected through face-to-face -face interviews uh, with children, carers, caseworkers, and on one occasion with birth parents. The study, as I pointed out, with longitudinal research, one of the features is the use of repeated measures with each wave of data collection. And some of the measures that were used in this study were the looking after children assessment and action records from the framework that Harriet referred to, uh, the Arkenbach, uh, which was completed by carers, the Arkenbach teacher's report completed by teachers, uh, uh, a measure to look at self-esteem, also a measure to look at attachment uh, between children and their carers, uh, and also uh, attachment styles of uh, individual carers. So about the children, we had... Um, 60 children to begin with, but one of the issues with longitudinal studies is the uh, issue of attrition, and we did lose one child uh, early in the study. So the breakdown in terms of gender is there, and in terms of age as well. And the children are essentially from the Bernardo's uh, Find a Family program, uh, which, is a which is a program that focuses on permanent family care and adoption for hard-to-place children. Uh, many of the children had failed placements prior to coming into this program. 
In terms of care history, a third of the children had more than five placements, uh, including pre-Bernardo's care history. And the median number of placements was four, the average being 4.3 placements. The time in care was strongly related to uh, the number of placements they'd had. And also, um, half the children at the third wave of data collection had been in a placement for four years uh, continuously. And that, I guess, is an important indicator of uh, their stability at that stage. The uh, study looked at their attachment and their relationship with foster parents, and 70% rated their relationship with the foster mother very well. 86% had very good relationships with foster siblings, and 9 out of 10 were positive about their foster father, where the rating was not quite as high as the rating of the foster mother. And um, if there's time, we might be able to talk about the reasons why that happens. As I pointed out, we used a particular measure to look at attachment, which is the IPPA, which is the interpersonal parent and peer attachment uh, scale. And essentially what we did see was this was administered on three occasions for three waves of the study. But here I compare the third, the second and the third wave where we noticed changes in the positive direction uh, in terms of, um, I guess, the attachment uh, developing with the foster carers. And that, of course, uh, reflects uh, some, uh, some of the benefits of the children's time and care by that third wave of data collection. And the strongest changes were seen among the boys and the older children. And what we find at the third wave was that they were beginning to catch up with the girls and younger children who on the first and second wave uh, did develop much stronger attachments. So again, the advantage of following them up was able to give us the, the opportunity to capture that developing relationship and to see some of the gender differences between boys and girls in the development of uh, attachment. As I pointed out before, um, even with this standardized measure, we notice some distinct differences in the attachment that they were developing with the foster mother compared to paternal attachment, where we saw very strong attachment to the foster mother and to their peers, their siblings, uh, in the foster home. But uh, the attachment, I guess, uh, to the foster father tended to be not as strong and took much longer to develop. Uh, in terms of frequency of contact, the one child in five had contact with the birth mother, at least fortnightly, ne nearly three quarters or 72% saw their birth mother at least once every three months. Um, also 28% saw their father between once a month and every few months on holidays. So the contact with the birth father also was limited. And four in, in 10 children had ongoing contact with their previous carer if they had changed placements. The other measure that we did use was also to look at children's self-esteem, which was assessed using the hair self-esteem scale, and was, which was administered on three occasions, three waves of the study. So girls and boys by the third wave had an average of 82 on that scale. But peer self-esteem was, it looks at the, uh, the, the scale looks at, um, uh, I guess, um, uh, home self-esteem, peer self-esteem, and school self-esteem, as well as a global score on self-esteem. And uh, what we do see here, especially when you correlate these scores with the pattern of placements, is that peer self-esteem was negatively correlated with the total number of placements. So the more placements children had, the lower their peer self-esteem. Age of entry was also found to be related to their global self-esteem, in that children who went into care at an older age had higher self-esteem at interview two and interview three. In the case of self-esteem also, uh, what we do see is that boys who had significantly 
uh, lower self-esteem on the first wave of data collection uh, tended to score higher at interview three compared to interview two. And I guess this is uh, encouraging in the sense that uh, we see that the boys were beginning to respond more positively to the foster home environment, uh, even though it was later than girls. The other issue that was looked at was the caseworker's assessment of the child's adjustment, uh, and they were asked to rate uh, the child's adjustment in the placement uh, on a, a four-point scale, uh, which included excellent if the child was settled or perceived to have minimum problems, adequate if there was a mix of strengths and difficulties, mixed if they had some problems, but also periods when they were quite settled, and poor if there was very poor integration and demonstrated a high level of problems. Um, and according to uh, the data, what we see here is that the proportion of children with excellent adjustment uh, tended to grow with time. Uh, so it was 17.5% in the first year or the first 18 months, uh, but you can see progressively uh, the ratings, caseworker ratings on the children's adjustment uh, tended to increase. Um, and those children who were with their carers for at least three years or more showed better academic adjustment and better overall adjustment as well as better health. So here again, uh, we see how stability of the placement uh, and stability with uh, a particular carer uh, has uh, benefits in terms of overall outcomes for children. I mentioned earlier uh, our emphasis on attachment, and in fact, uh, the study was driven by two important concepts, attachment, which we all know gives uh, children uh, a secure base, and a template on which to build other kinds of adult attachments later on. Uh, but also resilience, because uh, again, as Harriet pointed out, we, uh, many of the children who come into care have experienced uh, a high level of adversity and vulnerability. And uh, those who work in this field are always looking at ways in which we can optimize their developmental outcomes. So the study also looked at what are some of the positive life events that children uh, had noted. Um, and as you can see, they were uh, uh, positive life events uh, related to achievements, whether it be education or sports and so on, um, bonds and attachments that they were building with birth parents or previous caregivers or the present caregiver, uh, with friends and so on and so forth. Uh, also stability of the foster placement. Uh, some had part-time jobs and that was a strong source of um, achievement for them. Um, and other factors over there. So in terms of the findings on that, uh, there were some interesting trends, uh, and I'm here focusing on the uh, third wave of data collection, where 94% had at least uh, one of the five listed achievements, uh, achievement life events, like 48% had two or three of those events. 92% uh, had at least one of the six uh, attachment life events, and 52% had at least two or three of those events. Um, so caseworkers tended to rate children, 90% of them tended to rate children as being excellent or very good at that point in time. There were also, um, I guess, some uh, critical events that children uh, referred to, along the way at different stages of the study, and the most frequently reported were uh, experiences of bullying, emotional abuse, violence or physical abuse, and most of them as pre-care experiences, but they still talked about them at each wave of data collection. I should uh, wind up here. I was going to talk about some of the method methodological issues um, and ethical issues when conducting longitudinal research. 
as well as uh, some of the challenges in conducting research with children. Uh, but I'll very quickly talk about implications, such as, uh, for example, I think the findings point out very clearly the importance of recognizing the emotional and behavioral difficulties that children experience while it, they are in care and recognizing the impact on carers who are looking after them on a day-to-day -day basis. We also did see with some of the previous data that there were particular vulnerabilities and particular strengths that were based on gender and age. And I think it's important to individualize and have differential responses uh, from caseworkers and carers based on gender and age. Uh, similarly, we did see issues of self-concept and self-esteem. Um, and this also points out uh, for us uh, to, to be aware of some of the um, issues arising in relation to children's self-image and self-esteem. Uh, similarly, with family and social relationships, contact, while it is a challenging and contentious issue, um, carers still must be supported in that task of building strong attachments uh, between children uh, and their uh, birth families and other uh, connections that they might have. Um, and finally, to conclude, um, I think um, what we do see uh, throughout the study is good levels of cohesion between the foster carers at all three uh, waves of data collection. And, uh, and I guess also um, this implies the resources and training uh, that needs to be available to carers uh, in order to build on the strengths uh, in that appear, uh, I guess, emerge from the study. Um, there is a, a list of readings at the end, are publications from the study that uh, you may be interested in following up, and I might stop here. Professor Fernandez, for the, to describing your study and the key findings and the implications of those findings for uh, policy and practice. And now I'd like to introduce Professor Paul DeFabro, and we'll talk about the Pathways of Care Longitudinal Study in New South yeah. Wales. Yes, and, and I guess more generally about some of my experience with longitudinal research, and I'll, I'll stay here because I'll have a bit more of a conversation than uh, lecturing to you. Um, yeah, so I, I've been very fortunate to be involved with a number of longitudinal studies over the years. In fact, the very first one I was involved with in South Australia was originally going to be a, an evaluation of lack. And so in many ways, it wasn't for lack and the idea of um, trialling lack in South Australia, which didn't, didn't happen in the end, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you about our home care research because uh, it was the starting point. So my very first experience was, was a study in South Australia where we tracked about 200 children through care and that was a study where we found very startling levels of placement and stability in care. We were finding, for example, that um, some, some children were changing placement 40 times in three months. Um, so my, my first sort of experience of longitudinal research was very was quite a sort of shocking experience in many ways because I saw um, just um, the scale of some of the problems you can see in the care system. And from there I moved on to um, being involved with several other projects including one national study involving um, reunification which we did in several states um, with Elizabeth and I um, looking at um, the sort of factors which contribute to young people going home um, in our home care. We, we use a lot of ministry of data to, to do that. And more recently, the study um, which I've been involved with it, uh, as one of the investigators, though it does involve many other people, is the Pathways of Care Longitudinal Study, which is a flagship study um, here in New South Wales. I think which in many ways is the, the landmark study. It does all the things which I wish I, we could have done many years ago in South Australia, but we didn't have the resources, uh, or time or money to be able to do this type of project. So this, this study um, has been developed over a period of about a decade. Uh, many different people have been involved. Uh, it's been a you know, major commitment from the state government um, and, the, and the partner families and communities. So Pathways, if you're not aware of it, it will, the data will be made available more generally to other researchers fairly soon. So if you're doing a PhD or if you're doing a master's, looking to do some really good research involving um, our home care, the Pathways data will be eventually available to, for that sort of project. Uh, and it hasn't been you know, extensively analysed, we've only really just scratched the surface. The study involves over 1,400 children in our home care who are on final orders, and they've been tracked for about seven years across five waves of data collection. So it's a bit like Australia's version of, of long scan over there in, in, in the US. So it's got measures of health, um, quite a wide range of uh, psychological measures. Many of these are mapped to the LSAC, the Longitudinal Study of Children. 
and many other national studies, so they're actually normative comparative data you can use to see how the kids in care compare. So we've been, there's been interviews of caseworkers, the children themselves, uh, some teacher interviews, uh, quite so, and a lot of data linkage as well, so actually linking up uh, other data sets, health data, education, NAPLAN, those sorts of data sets to see how that all comes together. Uh, and I think this particular study is already yielding a number of very um, interesting findings. I think it's, it, it, it enables, as I said, to do things which um, fundamentally you want to do in our home care research. One, one of these things is, for example, a little bit sort of um, jargony, but one of the most important things to look at in the context of, um, of this area is what are called exposure effects versus what are called selection effects. That is, when we see outcomes for children, we often ask, for example, how are children doing in kinship care or... Um, how are children who experience placement instability doing? We often don't know whether that's a characteristic of the, the children uh, before they came to care, whether it's, it's a characteristic of their experience in care. So, for example, when you encounter children who um, have experienced lots of placement instability, you often find they've got a lot of behavioural problems. But is it the case that those behavioural problems were there to begin with? And that explains why they were so unstable in care. Or do those two things go hand in hand? As I was saying to Harriet before, one of the challenges of longitudinal research is that it's almost like different strokes of different folks sometimes in that more complex children often have different trajectories through the system and different outcomes. And often it's very hard to say, well, that's because uh, of the different exposures or experiences in care versus how they were to begin with. And so longitudinal research gives us the opportunity to do things like where we try and match children on certain characteristics to see what happens to them over time. So we can try and sort out What's, co what's caused by their differences as opposed to what they might be experiencing uh, in the care system itself. Now, I think one of the most exciting things about this type of research is it brings together self-report psychological data with system data. In psychology, we often sort of just go off and do a survey and we do correlations and say very exciting things like, you know, self-esteem's correlated to how depressed you are and things like that. This is research which can actually say a child's got these needs, um, whether it be in behaviour, emotionally, and we can actually see what happens to those children over time. And we can also see how that relates to their um, background and their family history. So we've already found in the Pathways Project, for example, that children who have, have more externalising behaviour, using, using a child behaviour checklist, so more acting out behaviours, hyperactivity and other problem behaviours, at wave two and three, it's about three years in, are more likely to have physical abuse and various other risk factors. So we're already seeing connections between how they're functioning and some of the risk factors we, we, we measure just administratively before they come into care. Already, for example, we can see that kids in kinship care um, are often a little bit different from the kids who go into foster care. And we've been able to differentiate between grandparents and other relatives, and they're different groups. It's very hard to do. Um, kinship care research, you look internationally, it's hard to sort of find a good reference point because in America, most of the kinship carers are, are African-American and they're often grandparents. But in Australia, we've been able, in this study, with a big enough sample, we're able to look at other relatives who are often Aboriginal parents and compare them with grandparents. And what we find is, for example, that kids who go to be placed in with grandparents tend to have less, fewer behavioural problems. They're, they're, they're easier kids, if you want to use a, that, that sort of terminology. Uh, and we've already discovered that yeah, kids who are in kinship care have more frequent contacts, often with their, um, their birth parents. The relationships are often better. But that's not the case with the Aboriginal children. It's often when they're placed with kin that the kin say, I want to keep you away from the problems I know I'm aware occurring in the family. If they're placed close to country, that they will know about the problems. And so they will uh, have often a different uh, way of dealing with contact. The study is already showing, for example, that we're not seeing a strong widening of any sort of gap between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal children in the care system. The Aboriginal children and non-Aboriginal children are developmentally fairly similar in the first three waves of data. Although we're noticing that the, the non-Aboriginal children seem to be improving on some of these measures, but that the Aboriginal children are not. And that's immediately flagging to us uh, some issues there. And also we, we're looking at, doing a lot of work looking at cultural connections too. We, for example, have picked up that there's, there's probably only a very small number of Aboriginal children in the system after three waves who have no contact with relatives who are placed with non-Aboriginal placements. But what we don't know is how many of those relatives are having contact with are Aboriginal. And so the system data already is telling us we need to look, as Harriet was saying, we need to take what we've got at this very macro level and try and delve deeper to find out whether the, the, the quality of cultural connections and the actual nature of the contact is consistent with what we expect for Aboriginal children. That is, it, it's providing appropriate connections. 
Longitudinal research, I think, just to, as a reflection, is not an easy bit of research to do. We always like to do it. It's very expensive. And one of the challenges, of course, is, as Elizabeth was saying, um, attrition is a major problem. The Pathways project is, is great in that the attrition rate's been pretty low. I think they've got an over 90% uh, retention rate for the sample. Um, but even with some attrition over time, um, any of you who've worked with longitudinal data know it's, it's quite a difficult area because there's lots of debates about what you do about missing data. You've got to publish it, and they say, well, how do you deal with that? There's imputation methods, there's, there's weighting, and the, and the statistical methods used are quite complex uh, for longitudinal data. But that, that's, um, that's why I think it needs a lot of expertise to do it, much of which I'm still, still grappling with myself. So um, that's a bit of an overview, I think, of the, um, the Pathways project. And I think one of the most exciting things about this the study is that it's often a starting point. That is, we, we look at trajectories and patterns through the care system. And what we particularly look for is, is the things like, for example, if you find a particular profile of a young person who's at risk, and we don't see them follow the, the regular pathway. And that enables us to ask questions such as, well, what services did they get? Uh, what important individuals came into their life? What changed to make their life course history change? So we can use it to sort of pick up some of those findings from life course history to sort of pick up those changes in trajectory. And that's where dedicated qualitative research often can be directed and, and informed by these larger trajectory studies like this. So, so pathways will be, as a, uh, studies will continue to roll out over the next uh, few years, but many of you here in the audience may have an opportunity to be part of that sort of series of analyses. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Paul DeFabro. Um, and thank you for our speakers for presenting about the experiences, the strengths, the challenges of doing longitudinal research and some of the insights that have emerged from those studies. And now I'd like to introduce um, Deirdre Cheers, CEO from Bernardo's Australia, to reflect on some of the ways that uh, Bernardo's has used uh, longitudinal research to inform their practice. Thank you, and good evening, and thank you for staying. And I just said to Amy, I'm, I'm so cold from sitting there that just standing up's good, I can move. I'm sure there are jokes about three professors and a CEO, but I don't know what they are. Perhaps <laughs> some of you have heard them. Um, I'm not going to talk for very long, so um, I'm, I'm going to give you just uh, a short reflection on the changing landscape of child protection and out-of-home care for children um, uh, over time, uh, brief. Um, I'm going to just reflect on the, the presentations, the excellent presentations we've just had in relation to does this make a difference in relation to um, connecting research with policy and practice. And then I'm, I'm going to make just a couple of comments about technology, which has been mentioned by all of the speakers, um, and, and data sets and national Australian reporting. So if, if, um, if I can start really by saying, well, I, I'm guessing that many of you in the audience are students and perhaps social work students, and uh, to share with you that when I left the social work department in this university uh, initially, which is, was at the end of 1979, um, child protection and out-of-home care looked very different. And uh, the word research connected to child protection and out-of-home care was um, not terribly visible. So my first uh, job was assessing children for entry to a children's home which had around 120 teenage boys in it. Um, it was a very different landscape in that most of those boys didn't have a formal engagement with statutory child protection. And some of you might have followed the recent Royal Commission into uh, sexual abuse in institutions. It's quite recent that uh, we had a very different landscape and not a visible connection between research and practice. So Bernardo's Australia, which is the organisation I now lead, um, in the past was connected with uh, initially child migration of child, child welfare children from England, ran children's homes and farm schools in the 50s and 60s, but was always an organisation that listened to children. And, and when I say listened to children, what I mean really is that from the early days, we wanted to, if you like, research or know what children thought and uh, what 
what their experience of care was. So it's, it's clear to me in reflecting on, on those times that what our three speakers have talked about, both quantitatively and qualitatively, um, was something that was present in Bernardo's Australia as an agency from its very early inception and was probably something fairly unique organisationally. So from the 1980s, we had direct involvement with uh, Professor Fernandez, um, who did numbers of studies in our foster care programs. And then from the 1990s, we looked further afield because we had that commitment to research and we had a dedicated research officer position who scanned the landscape for what was inf information that could help us. So um, our first um, interface with, with Professor Ward was um, in fact at a conference in Western Australia where a Western Australian academic who I'm, I'm sure is now retired was talking about this thing called looking after children and um, it wasn't a large-scale project but when we sat in that audience and uh, looked at, at what he was doing and the material he was using which was material that Harriet had developed we said well you know isn't that extraordinary it looks very simple but actually it has great potential for helping us track children over time and learn whether what we're doing is actually making a difference to children's life outcomes. So our involvement was very much a practical involvement but it involved agency commitment and over time of course also resources. Um, our children in care also uh, in the Pockle study that Paul has talked about. So it's that ongoing commitment, I think, that, that has meant that Bernardo's has been able to maintain um, at, at an attention to research and to longitudinal research. So if I touch briefly on the impact of that research relationship and specifically these uh, re research relationships, because we have others clearly, on policy and practice and, and think about does it actually make a difference. There are many facilitators and many barriers to a commitment like that and, and some things are actually both a facilitator and a barrier you've got to be able to finance it. And Paul has mentioned that longitudinal research is expensive research. And agencies like my own who are funded uh, by government, by corporate partners, by donors to deliver services and programs, those, those funding contracts and relationships in this day and age are generally short term. A five year contract is a long contract. A one, two, three year contract is a usual contract. So an organisation has to be confident that they can maintain the commitment to programs in order to participate in longitudinal research. Because if we were to um, provide uh, children as part of a data set and then close a program and be unable to continue with that relationship, of course it would impact on that longitudinal research. Partnerships are important, both the academic partnerships and partnerships with other organisations because often organisations don't have sufficient um, subjects in a particular client group to be able to actually produce uh, something of magnitude that a particular research project wants to look at. And then there's, of course, the power of politics. Politics uh, funds things, much as we, we um, often find those political relationships, tricky relationships, children in care are very often a hot topic. And so governments want sometimes very quick fix solutions, which don't want to wait for the results of longitudinal research. So again, organisations have to be uh, strong enough and robust enough to withstand that power of politics because once you've committed to a longitudinal research relationship you really need to be able to see it through and governments also of course like to save money so if I if I just finish up by making a couple of points about technology about the Australian uh, national um, uh, scene of child protection out of home care 
and stress to you the importance of uh, the ability to match data sets. Australia has um, state and territory jurisdiction in relation to child protection, which makes child protection very interesting and very tricky. So if any of you um, are interested and go to those national reports, um, the Institute of Health and Welfare, the Institute of Family Studies, what you find is that the states and territories often define their care and, uh, care and protection populations differently, which makes it very hard to track over time. Sometimes they change their uh, thresholds for reporting. New South Wales did that some years ago. So the, the actual impact then on cohorts that are in longitudinal research uh, sometimes change over time. And then, of course, there's technology. New South Wales is in the middle of a big child protection reform. Um, we're contributing, Bernardo's is contributing to that, all agencies are contributing to that, but we don't have enough longitudinal research uh, to know whether what um, we're doing on the ground and, and what the practice will look like, despite the reform being based on research, will actually improve children's outcomes over time. So, again, I come back to the importance of the agency commitment to it, the relationships that one makes with particular academic organisations and the importance of technology being able to support that. So um, the study that Paul has mentioned is, is of particular interest, I think, nationally because it's been a big study and one that has continued over time. So thank you and I encourage any of you who are at all interested in this area to take up a career in child protection and out-of-home care. It's not the most popular field in the world, but it's a really important one. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for attending this evening, and thank you to our panelists for helping us learn about what insights we can gather from longitudinal research and taking the long view on out-of-home care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.